Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So here's what happens up here. We have really beautiful summers that are averaging, you know, 75, 80. That's normal. We get rain every couple of weeks and, you know, it refreshes everything. Kathleen Rose has been farming in the small Puget Sound town of Gig Harbor, Washington, for 17 years. We have pigs and goats and chickens and all kinds of animals and all kinds of trees and plants. I have an orchard, 60 fruit trees and two gardens. But this summer, everything changed. 108 degrees (laughs) is not something I've ever dealt with on a farm. It was very scary, actually, really severe. The high temperatures were part of a series of heat waves that scorched the Pacific Northwest. And Kathleen was simply not prepared. After three days of extreme heat... I got really dizzy and uh, collapsed in the garden and kind of, I don't know if I passed out, but it was very foggy. And my husband's a paramedic, thankfully. And he said it really boiled down to heat exhaustion coupled with a kind of an anxiety attack is the pressure of it all for three days straight. Um, So it was weird. It was really took a physical toll on me and it took me a while to recover from that. So I'm 54. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I was like, wow, this is real. And with that, Kathleen joined around 195 million Americans who lived in areas this summer that experienced extreme heat. Life-threatening heat continues to bear down on both coasts, and the death toll is rising. Millions of people are dealing with scorching temperatures as a deadly heat wave continues to grip parts of North America. The CDC says more than 600 people die in the U.S. every year from extreme heat. Human activities are responsible for climate change. Meteorologists forecast a scorching hot summer this year around the globe. July 2021 was the hottest month ever recorded on Earth. Just lately, the ripple effects of climate change can be seen in places like California, Oregon, Washington State, where excessive heat and drought has made wildfire season particularly dangerous this year. Wildfires and heat waves maybe the new normal. That's one of the takeaways from a new landmark report released by the UN in August. Most of these heat waves are caused by a dome of high-pressure air, turning an area essentially into a furnace. As one expert put it, imagine the hottest, most humid weather conditions you've ever experienced. That may have lasted for a day or two. Now imagine if it felt that way all summer long. That's what it was like for a lot of people this summer. Extreme heat is a problem that affects all of us, and it's putting our lives at risk. Believe it or not, it kills more Americans than any other type of severe weather. That's more than hurricanes or tornadoes or floods. And the longer we spend in the heat, the more serious effects it can have on our bodies. So for someone who's had heat stroke, there are reports of people having long-term issues with their brain. You can have issues with your kidneys and liver, so the different organs actually can have long-term issues. For today's episode, we're going to be looking at something that fascinates me. The impacts of extreme heat on our bodies, 
in how our bodies respond, how we learn how to stay safe and cool during the swelter, even without air conditioning. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and this is Chasing Life. Well, certainly anecdotally, our colleagues in the emergency department in these last, you know, for example, a couple of heat waves in Seattle have observed that they have not seen anything like it before in terms of the number of people coming into the emergency department with heat-related illness. That's Dr. June Spector from the University of Washington in Seattle. She studies the ways heat and other climate-related hazards impact the human body. Like farmer Kathleen Rose, Dr. Spector has experienced the effects of extreme heat firsthand. Just this summer, Washington State reported 138 heat deaths so far. And in Oregon, officials say at least 96 people have died of heat-related illness. During these heat events, we do see an increase in mortality and deaths, particularly among those with underlying health conditions, so cardiovascular, heart, and respiratory, in addition to heat illnesses, so heat illnesses occurring from the heat itself. You know, I've always thought of um, heat sort of exacerbating underlying illnesses, like you mentioned, heart disease or, or lung disease, whatever it may be. But when you say isolated heat illness, what, what, what is that? I mean, can you just describe what that is and what's happening in the body? There's... Actually, a lot of different heat illnesses that can occur. So I think one that's most commonly talked about is heat stroke, which can be fatal. And there's different versions of heat stroke, actually. There's the classic heat stroke that can occur in the very young and very old. And then there's also exertional heat stroke, which we see in otherwise healthy young folks who are doing heavy physical work. Basically, what happens is we have in our body a really great system for maintaining uh, body temperature in a very narrow range. So when we go into a situation where we're either exposed to hot conditions or we're exerting ourselves a lot, which also generates heat, then our brain, particularly the area of the brain called the hypothalamus, checks that set point and says, hey, are we starting to get more heat? Are we rising above that? And if so, we need to cool down. There are a few ways the body cools down. One is something called vasodilation, that's when your blood vessels get wider and get closer to the surface of your skin. You've seen what this looks like. You get hot and flushed in the face. What's actually happening is heat is being transferred out of your body. We need to cool down. And so one of the main mechanisms for humans for cooling down is sweating and evaporative heat loss, so sweating to lose heat. But in order to do that, you obviously have to sweat, but you also have to pump blood out to the skin and have those blood vessels at the skin dilate to lose heat. And so the body, the heart has to pump harder, and that's why we, we get concerned when people don't have uh, normal heart function. Um, the heart rate goes up, the heart works harder, and we really try to get that cooling done. Um, we sweat. And so if you're dehydrated, it's harder to basically cool down through that mechanism. But if that system gets overwhelmed, the core body temperature rises and we start to see heat stroke above about 104 Fahrenheit. And that's when different organ systems can start to get affected. Can most of these heat illnesses that you're describing, can they be most of them pretty well addressed by having adequate hydration status? Hydration can certainly help. That's not everything, though. I think if you put someone in a hot enough situation with a lot of hydration, you probably still could get um, heat stroke and death. But certainly hydration is an absolute key in order to prevent the worst effects of heat. 
So I just got off the bike myself. I rode really fast because I did not want to be late for this podcast. So I'm kind of still sweating a little bit. I don't know if you can tell. But how much heat could I actually generate just from exertion? I mean, if, if hot environment versus exertional heat generation is one worse than the other, or, or do you basically think of them as the same? It's interesting, it, and it does vary uh, from person to person, but in general, our muscles are only about 20% efficient. So we actually generate quite a lot of heat that isn't being used as work um, when we're exercising. And so it really is a combination of the two, and it depends to some extent as well on the environmental conditions. Would most people who are listening, would they know if they've ever had a heat-related illness? I mean, is it is it obvious? Yeah, so I think that if you're aware of it, that's that's a good first step. But one of the more common things that I think a lot of folks have experienced is actually heat exhaustion. So you haven't quite gotten to that point where the core body temperature has gone up, but you feel nauseous, have a headache, you feel very fatigued. You're probably somewhat dehydrated if you've been in a really hot environment or exercising a lot in in the heat. So that's a common one that I think a a lot of folks, if they think back, you know, they might say, oh yeah, I think I might've experienced that before. But having that awareness is really key because you don't want to not treat that or not address that um, before it gets more serious. You know, I'm in Atlanta now. I go back and forth to New York, both on the East Coast. And, you know, it's interesting because sometimes I'll, you know, check the weather. It'll seem like it's very similar weather, but it'll feel a lot hotter when I'm in New York. The concrete and, you know, just sort of walking around there. Is that in my own mind, or are there certain environments that are just going to be predictably feel warmer, if not actually warmer? Certainly we know about urban heat island effects. So we know that heat can get trapped in city environments. So there's a lot there to think about in terms of the future and how we want to design our environment in such a way that it is efficient, but also reduces and addresses some of the heat that I think we're anticipated to have. After the break, why heat exposure in the United States hits some neighborhoods harder than others. And now, back to chasing life. Many American cities are running a fever, and city dwellers are suffering the consequences. Today, the weather is extremely hot. (laughs) Definitely feel like we might be in an urban heat island. So what is an urban heat island? Well, there are areas where there's lots of buildings and paved surfaces that tend to absorb and retain heat more than leafier locations. What's worse is that the urban heat island effect make some neighborhoods even hotter than others. I take my temperature readings outside of Atlanta, like 40 minutes away in the suburbs. It feels extremely hotter here than it does when I take my temperatures. Like, I definitely feel it. That's Brianna Finley. She's a junior at Spelman College in Atlanta. She's also a researcher for Urban Heat ATL. It's one of a number of collaborative projects mapping the hottest neighborhoods in more than 20 cities. 92.1. Brianna's walking around the streets of Atlanta using a handheld sensor connected to her phone to measure the temperature. Yeah, we're in a pretty pretty busy um, intersection, not a lot of greenery. The big problem in Atlanta has been the removal of trees due to the ongoing development boom. Heat concerns hit close to home for Brianna. Her grandmother is particularly susceptible to heat-related illnesses. 
So my grandmother, she's about 74. So every time we go outside, she feels the heat. She automatically shuts down. It was even to a point where we came home one day and we had to call the ambulance because she was, you know, having symptoms of of like a heat stroke. So, yeah, it's awful. Folks in New York City are concerned as well, and they have reason to be. According to the nonprofit Climate Central, the city is ranked as the country's third most intense urban heat island. Who's first and second? New Orleans and Newark, which is New Jersey's largest city. Volunteers are working on the same data mapping project that we saw in Atlanta, and that's a partnership between Columbia University's Earth Institute and a local organization called South Bronx Unite. Theoretically, the heat distribution within this dense urban jungle citywide, and, you know, everybody would say it, all of Manhattan is a dense urban jungle, but it's not. The heat distribution is not the same, which tells us that there are other factors at play besides density, height of buildings, color of rooftops, et cetera, which are often considered the contributors. Liv Yoon is leading the New York study. She's a social scientist at Columbia University's Earth Institute. I think this is where the New York City example is a really useful case to explore. There are such stark differences, even within such a small geographical area. On any given day, the temperature difference between city blocks can vary as much as 20 degrees. Yoon hopes the data will help cities create solutions for their most vulnerable communities. We already know the things that we can do to mitigate extreme heat or urban heat island effect. Like planting more trees, having more vegetation, having more green space, having lighter color rooftops, having buildings more spread out. And when these mitigation measures are deployed, they should be done so equitably, meaning they should be done in the most effective communities first. In many parts of the country, temperatures are usually hotter in neighborhoods that have lower income residents and communities of color. These are areas usually near industrial centers or closer to highways. If things don't change, then the weather in many American cities will be similar to southern cities today. By 2036, Des Moines is predicted to have 33 days of extreme heat every year. Minneapolis-St. Paul is on course for 20 days of temperatures above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's not just cities feeling the heat. Remember Kathleen in Washington State? Well, this summer's heat waves were even more dangerous for her and her family because they don't have air conditioning. And that isn't uncommon in Washington state. That's because temperatures are normally cooler. I have a network of about 50 female farmers. I've said to them, you know what, if this is what climate change is going to do, I'm, I can't do this. This is brutal. A hotter future is pretty certain. But Dr. Spector says how hot it actually gets, well, that's up to us. We know if we just look at the climate projections that we are going to see more frequent and more severe Um, heat events going forward. And it's really up to us to figure out how can we mitigate that ideally and kind of halt climate change if possible, but really adapt to it and figure out how we can make our communities safer for everyone. No one is immune to the climate crisis. We know the planet is going to change a lot more in our lifetime. Things could get really bad, or if we take action now, we could avoid some of the worst outcomes. We can help combat the effects of extreme heat by planting more trees, by painting our roofs white. And in the short term, you can keep cool and even safe by making sure to wear lightweight clothing when you're outside, close your curtains when the sun is out, and think about ventilation in your home. Even a simple fan can help. 
Of course, you got to drink plenty of water. If you're thirsty, by the way, that means you're already dehydrated. Now, if a heat wave is coming, pay attention. Make a plan with your loved ones and call to check in on each other. Be aware of the signs of heat stroke and seek medical attention if necessary. If you want to find out just how hot your city is likely to get, you can go to ucsusa.org. That's the Union of Concerned Scientists. And on their site, you'll find their Killer Heat interactive tool. Before we go, I've been hearing from so many anxious parents lately worried about their kids going back to school. I get it. Especially with the highly transmissible Delta variant in circulation and kids now making up a larger proportion of COVID cases, this is on a lot of people's minds. Now, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to keeping kids COVID-free in schools. I really wish there were. But given all the various local and state rules out there, I spent some time writing down the steps that you can take that I could take to make in-person learning as safe as possible. First, get them vaccinated if they're 12 or over. I think you got to know that by now. That's going to offer the best protection. It's really remarkable. Next, have them wear a mask. Inside classrooms, but also in places like the school bus and locker rooms, basically anywhere indoors. That's because so much of the country is seeing high infection rates right now. One way to sort of think about this is to remember you're probably not going to need to wear a mask all the time, but we're sort of being sprayed with a viral shower right now, if you almost think of this like a weather event. So the mask is sort of like your umbrella. So while there is such high viral transmission, wear a mask. Now, while transmission outdoors is not as likely, do remember that Delta is really contagious. So if kids are going to be right on top of each other, they might want to mask up outdoors as well. Talk to the school administration and teachers about steps that they are taking to mitigate the spread. Maybe keeping kids in learning pods and finding alternatives to a crowded cafeteria for lunch. Also, really important, ask how the school is improving ventilation inside classrooms. This is going to be something that's going to stay important long past this pandemic. Improving the ventilation. It's important because schools can avoid the buildup of virus in the air by doing simple things. Opening windows, getting a HEPA filter, whatever it takes to improve the ventilation. Make the indoor air more like the outdoor air. That way the virus can disperse more easily. And finally, and again, you should know this, but don't send a sick child to school. You have to know this by now, even if it's only the sniffles. As a father of three, I know it can be disruptive, to keep a child at home for the day, and we've been going through this for a while now through the pandemic, but the risk is that you're going to get others sick if you don't do it. Remember, how well your school does will depend on how much virus is circulating in the community and what the vaccination rate is. These are things you can look up, you can know, just like the weather. Please keep the questions coming. I want to hear from you. Record your thoughts as a voice memo. Email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. Give us a call at 470-396-0832 and leave a message. We might even include them on an upcoming episode of the podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Rachel Cohn. Jordan Gaspare, Audrey Horwitz, Paige Sutherland, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park. Our medical writer 
is Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.